Welcome to Abstract, colon, the future of science. I'm your host, Jeremy Ullman, and today, as always, we are bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research. We recorded in the past, you're listening in the present, and we're discussing the future of science. Enjoy the show. You're listening to Abstract. I'm your host, forever and always, Jeremy Ullman. Today we're talking about sleep, and I'm joined by the one and only gregarious, passionate, and healthy Jesse Cook. Jesse, welcome to the show. How's it going? Hi, Jeremy. I am doing well. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm honored to be here. How are you doing today? I am doing phenomenally. Very excited to talk about sleep. It has been more than 60 episodes coming now. Very excited to be hopping into that today. Before we do, who are you and what do you do? Fantastic questions. I suppose I must say I'm a bit slighted that it's taken you 60 episodes to get to this critically important topic, but I'm, uh, I apologize. <laughs> I'm happy to, to carry that burden to unveil sleep to your audience. So my name is Jesse Cook. I'm a fifth year clinical psych PhD student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I began my sleep research career actually at the University of Arizona in uh, 2011 and didn't really know what I wanted to do, but then took a research position at the University of Wisconsin with a psychiatrist named David Plant, who is still my current mentor, and that was back in 2013. I joined his lab as a research specialist, largely just to try and figure out how to become an adult and what I wanted to do with my life and spend some time. But that's where I really cultivated my passion for sleep and developed what is now my primary research program, which is based on advancing the clinical care of individuals who experience excessive daytime sleepiness that isn't attributable to another explanatory factor, which I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail later on. I've been in the field now for about 10 years time. I was the training member at large for the Sleep Research Society in 2020 to 2021. It felt like uh, two years ago though. And um, now I currently serve on the communications committee for the Sleep Research Society. And ultimately, eventually, I'd love to find a career that harmoniously bridges industry, clinical, and research domains. And I find myself really interested kind of in a secondary research program on wearable sleep technology and sleep health applications and improving people's sleep through those uh, novel technological applications and devices. So I guess that's a long-winded response that, to say that uh, I broadly study sleep and I find it very fascinating and I'm, I'm here to talk about my research program today. Awesome. Well, you're here because I also find sleep quite fascinating and I want to learn more about it, brush up on some of the things that I may have learned in the past in my psychology degree and undergraduate and also learn some more to build on that. So let's start maybe with some big questions just to slowly narrow ourselves in. Why do we or why do you study sleep? It's a, it's a great question. You know, honestly, I fell into sleep is what I will say. I was just a hippie undergrad at the University of Arizona looking to fill my Tuesday, Thursday schedule with a course. And I, I found sleep and sleep disorders taught by Dr. Richard Bootson. It was great. And what I learned was that sleep is this critically important behavior. And it's essential for all animals to our knowledge, meaning that across all of the animal kingdom, there is some form of a sleep-like state. And for me, that's a good indicator that it has unique importance. But then if you start thinking about it too, from the framework that 
it's largely antithetical to what we know about natural selection. It goes against natural selection principles as you're not looking for a mate, you're not protecting your offspring, you're not looking for food, and in fact, you're extremely vulnerable to predation when you're sleeping. These factors to me led me really curious about sleep as to why it's mm-hmm. been preserved across evolution and why it's so critical across so many beings. So that was kind of the initial impetus for finding sleep. And then you start thinking about it, well, I've always been interested in a clinical manner of helping people. And sleep is something that all individuals do. Uh, Some choose not to, and it doesn't bode well for them. Um, But all individuals sleep, and yet nobody's taught how to sleep. You know, we are always at a young age just told, go behind this door, close the door, shuts the light off, and eight hours later come out feeling refreshed. Sounds easy and great. But what we know is it's much more complicated than that. Well, wait, wait a second. There's a lot of things that humans do that we aren't taught to do that are kind of like automatic processes, like breathing and having your heart pump blood through your body. Uh, is sleep not one of these things that we can just count on to happen automatically? Like, why, why are you making this assumption that we need to be taught how to do it? What do people not know that they should know? That's a fantastic question and one that we will not be able to answer fully on this podcast. But <laughs> totally fine. You're, you're spot on. And that's kind of similar to so the basics, like sleep itself physiologically will happen. Left up to its own devices, your body will sleep. It will shut down and go into a sleep mode. Similar to breathing, right? There's the autonomic nature to breath. But we still are always concerned about types of breathing and disorders people have related to breathing. Or when it comes to eating, you know, back when I was younger, it wasn't so much at the forefront of important health. But nowadays, we're really, really interested in what we're eating, when we're eating it, how is this manipulating your body. So there's more attention to the nuances. And in our very complex modern world right now, our evolutionary biology that's been programmed to help us sleep is basically swimming upstream. With all the the electronics and the stress and the high-paced and anxious world we live in, we need to be taught how to land our planes for the day, how to wind down from this plugged-in world, how to remove ourselves from these technological devices and to allow and invite in this very, very critical and essential behavior for overall health. So that's why I still maintain that there's yes, there's a a pre-programming that we're going to be able to do it as long as we don't get in our way. But unfortunately, it's really hard not to get in your own way these days. And so we need to learn how not to do that. I like how you're talking about this this process of sleep as something that can be learned or almost like a skill that can be developed. Because you're talking about this period before going to sleep, the actual sleeping part, like the winding down. Do you generally consider the wind down as part of like general sleep hygiene and, and, and the sleep process as a whole? Like, does sleep start before and end after the actual eyes being closed? Brilliant question. And the way I would describe it is kind of the anecdote and what I give to the people that I work with as I'm a training clinician in sleep and working in the mm-hmm. framework of, of thinking about sleep as just not the period that you're actively trying to sleep. And it's not even that hour period of wind down if you're blessed enough to have that hour long period that you can devote to winding down. Because, you know, you're a single parent with multiple kids, like good luck working multiple jobs to be able to budget an hour to true relaxation. Mm -hmm. I'd like to tell people that a good night of sleep starts when you wake up in the morning. Because every, (laughs) every little thing you do across the day 
whether it's having sugar upon awakening or the mindset you have to start your day or the thoughts and attitudes you have about your sleep coming that night are going to influence your sleep ability and your sleep quality. So it's almost a never ending blurred boundary between sleep if you wanna look at it that way. I love that. I want to just repeat that again. A good night's sleep starts when you wake up in the morning. That's so that's so poignant. That hits really hard, actually. I, I, I'm definitely going to think about that further. And I hope for those of you listening right now, you also kind of let that percolate a little bit. Yeah, it's kind of got a little bit of the Bob Dylanism in it where it feels like it says nothing, but also says everything at the same time. So take what you want from it. <laughs> Great point. I do want to circle back for a second and touch on this evolutionary idea, or at least the animal kingdom and how sleep operates there. You said that all mammals engage in something or end up in something like a sleep-like state. You didn't say they end up sleeping. You said sleep-like state. What kind of different sleep states are there in the animal kingdom that are different from our own? Yeah, and and that's a, a fascinatingly complex statement. So not even just mammals, but insects as well will also have mm-hmm. a sleep-like state. And that's why there's certain criteria that we look for when we want to define a sleep-like state. So often it's a noticeable reduction in movement. That's obviously kind of a, a sense of tranquility and relaxation and a conservation of energy. You can see in some more advanced creatures an alteration in their electrical activity in the brain. And that's how we have started to really classify sleep. You'll also see this in other biological pathways, whether it's metabolic or respiratory. You'll see changes in breathing rhythms. You'll see changes in heart rate that define different stages of sleep. And right now, we're still doing it very crudely, but generally in how we operate in describing sleep, we can break it down into five distinct stages. One, we're both experiencing right now, and that's called wake. We all experience wake during our sleep. Nobody, unless you're extremely, extremely, extremely sleep deprived, is gonna sleep continuously through their night. So they're gonna have wake during their sleep. (laughs) Wake is part of sleep. I love that. It's a stage of sleep. And then we can think of it as far as two umbrella terms of non-REM, non-rapid eye movement sleep, and then rapid eye movement sleep. And these are all distinguished by changes in the electrophysiology of the brain, along with some other physical features such as eye movements and muscle paralysis. But within non-rapid eye movement sleep, there's also three different stages as well. So if you take a look at the three non-rapid eye movement stages, plus the rapid eye movement stage, plus wake, you have five. And within the animal kingdom, some creatures don't have that many stages. Some may just have a broad non-REM or non-rapid eye movement stage sleep, and some may just have as well as a rapid eye movement stage sleep. And it's actually fascinating because we see this in some ways in our development, in our neurodevelopment, where infants will have much more rapid eye movement sleep upon birth about 50%, and then that over time proportionally changes to about 20% of our sleep. And that's kind of what we've seen in evolution too, where REM sleep came online first, but then non-rapid eye movement sleep came second. And we've kind of utilized this to help understand the different functions of these different stages of sleep. And then it gets even wonkier there where some animals will sleep standing up, some will sleep one hemisphere at a time so they can fly across oceans for migration purposes. It's a very fascinating and variable behavior. That's insane. 
You said one hemisphere, like one side of the brain is is asleep and the other side isn't. Yeah, absolutely. So that's nuts. And we can't do that, right? Like humans can't do that with like meditation. We can't we can't bring ourselves to that. To my knowledge, at this point, we are incapable. But I wouldn't sell ourselves short. Maybe in the future, our more evolved states will be able to do so. Okay, very interesting. That was a great primer on sleep. I know that we could spend the rest of the entire episode just talking about a quarter of the things you just mentioned, but I appreciate that you outlined all the different stages. And once again, I love the fact that wake is a stage of sleep, which goes back to the statement you said before that a good night's sleep starts when you wake up because you're already in your first stage of sleep. Brilliant. All day long. Yeah. It's a, it's, I guess the longest stage of sleep is the first stage. Yeah, brilliant. There you go. Well said. And if you're taking a vested interest in your sleep health, you're already winning. Um, for me, it's not just a pillar of health. It's the foundation. I used to lump it in with diet and exercise and social interaction and spirituality as my pillars, but now sleep is truly underneath those. And those four other things are dependent on healthy sleep for me. And so I think kind of trying to view it in that sense and not viewing it as a weakness and not walking around with a badge of honor that you operate on five hours of sleep perfectly fine is a remarkable step forward for society as we do know that nobody can do that at this time. So I just am really happy to see that it's becoming more prioritized. And when thinking about your sleep, don't just think about the number of hours. Oftentimes that can actually get us into bad habits. Sleep health as a whole is a constellation of factors. And so duration is a big thing. And so for adults, we're shooting for seven to nine hours of total sleep time. But there's also the quality of sleep, which goes back into those stages we talked about. And certain things you can do will influence the quality and depth of your sleep. And then there's consistency, just making sure you have a consistent sleep-wake schedule as best you can. Prioritize a consistent rise time. I know that can be difficult. And just your ability to maintain sleep throughout the night. And I often plug those, or I think it's important to plug those, because I think it sets the framework for some of my research and, and kind of the enigma of the people that I actually study. So if it's okay with you, Jeremy, I would love the opportunity to just transition there. Absolutely. So just before we do, I just want to call out those three things one more time. So quality, quantity, and consistency, you're saying, are the pillars of sleep, which is itself the foundation of the other pillars of your life. So pillars on pillars, sleep is at the bottom, quality, quantity, consistency. Nailed it. Absolutely perfect. And if you can lock those into your 24-hour schedule, start with that, you know, reverse engineer your day, I guarantee you'll find more happiness in life. Amazing. And if you do find more happiness and you're listening right now, let us know down the line that you are happier and how that helped you. And also, Jesse, I hope maybe after the fact, you can give me a few resources that I can plug in the show notes for people to learn a bit more about how to develop the best kind of sleep hygiene and sleep process that they possibly can for themselves. Absolutely. Great. So the transition that you've all been waiting for, what are you actually researching? It's it's something that I'd definitely like to know more about. You did mention that your research is broadly focused on excessive daytime sleepiness. Is there a single word that can be used to describe that phrase? Yeah, it's kind of a nomenclature nightmare right now in some ways. But uh, for the sake of today, I think we'll use the term hypersomnolence. So excessive daytime sleepiness is one symptom that can be attributed to many different disorders. You can be not sleeping enough and you're probably gonna be sleepy during the day, right? But there's often situations where hypersomnolence exists where you're actually sleeping normal to prolonged periods at night and still experience excessive daytime sleepiness. Mm -hmm. And 
So we've ruled out the insufficient duration of sleep on this front. But there's still other explanatory reasons, such as like having untreated obstructive sleep apnea, where you're waking up 30 to 60 times an hour, generally unconsciously, and not able to get to the deeper stages. And so that can cause your excessive daytime sleepiness, even though you're actually still sleeping normal to prolonged periods. But that's you just said that with, with 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 a bad case of sleep apnea, you're up every minute. Yeah, it's it's actually remarkable that uh, there are individuals who are waking up due to a respiratory related event a hundred times an hour, in in very extreme cases, Holy and this smokes. is putting notable strain on their heart. It's removing oxygen from the brain, so it has major deleterious effects on basically all systems of the body. We could talk at length about the kind of issues of obstructive sleep apnea, but it's one reason why someone may have hypersomnolence. So once you kind of rule out obstructive sleep apnea, you're now going down this kind of flow chart of like what's left. Uh So this person's sleeping seven plus hours a night. It's not due to obstructive sleep apnea or their obstructive sleep apnea is being controlled. We're not seeing insomnia symptoms. And then you start getting to this cluster of related disorders. In what's known as the International Classification of Sleep Disorders, they're called central disorders of hypersomnolence, meaning we believe they're of brain origin. And one that people are really familiar with is narcolepsy. Mm -hmm. And so narcolepsy is a well-defined biological deficiency related to the erexin neurotransmitters in the brain. And basically they're obliterated in narcolepsy type 1, and that explains the fragile relationship between sleep and wake that individuals with narcolepsy experience. Is that genetic, by the way, having your orexin neurotransmitters obliterated? There's a strong uh, genetic relationship for narcolepsy type 1 for sure. But actually, fascinatingly enough, there's a theoretical framework that it's kind of an inflammation and autoimmune response. There was a strong uptick in cases after H1N1. Similarly, I imagine we'll see something similar with COVID. And so there seems to be this relationship between kind of intrusion into the body and the body just overreacting in some way and having a heightened response. But at least that biology or the deficiency underlying the pathology is well-defined. So treatment is at least in some ways very targeted. Then you start getting into these other two disorders, one called narcolepsy type 2 where they don't actually experience what's known as cataplexy, where they have this spontaneous loss of muscle ability, and they don't have as severe symptoms as narcolepsy type 1, and there's not the erexin deficiency, okay? Okay. And then you also have something called idiopathic hypersomnia, which you can kind of map onto my unexplained excessive daytime sleepiness or my unexplained hypersomnolence. So these people are sleeping upwards of 9 to 11 hours a night, there's no orexin deficiency, and they're excessively sleepy during the day, and they often experience really difficult time transitioning from sleep to wake, something called sleep inertia. Can we call this like uh, narcolepsy type 3? There's some discussion. You, you kind of joke in some ways. There's discussion in the field of making it narcolepsy type 3. I'm operating under a different pretext. I think we should have a spectrum. I think mm. narcolepsy should be its own. Narcolepsy type 1 should be its own disorder, and then we should have a hypersomnia spectrum. Uh, where we start putting narcolepsy type 2 and idiopathic hypersomnia on that spectrum there. That would make sense. Like, I kind of back the spectrum idea here, especially because we introduced this idea of hypersomnolence with the phrase excessive daytime sleepiness, which itself is, it, it sounds like a sliding scale. Excessive isn't extremely quantitative. 
right? It's it's a little bit vague. Brilliant. So like, I, I guess I'm, I'm kind of curious, how widely does hypersomnolence vary in terms of how it presents case by case? It's a, it's a great question. And this is also one of the real challenges we face right now in the clinical care is that we have really poor measurement tools for mapping on to sleepiness. So we've talked about the International Classification of Sleep Disorders, which relies upon objective tools. But some listeners may be aware of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders in its fifth edition, which has hypersomnolence disorder, which is the same thing as idiopathic hypersomnia, but in this other nosology. Nosology referring to the branch of medical science dealing with the classification of diseases. And that nosology only uses self-report. So I could walk in there right now, Jeremy, and say, look, doctor, I'm sleeping nine and a half hours a night. I'm excessively sleepy during the day. I'm not depressed. I don't have sleep apnea. There's no other, I don't have fibromyalgia. There's no medical condition that explains this. Hypersomnolence disorder. So that's a really hard way to classify any distinct severity right there. Oh, it's like if you don't have anything else, then just you default into the hypersomnolence diagnosis. Exactly. It's, it's um, you know, it's a rule out, right? So we don't have a lot of great measures to differentiate the severity of illness. But there are some people who just cannot work at all and cannot function in society. And then there are some people who are able to easily manage their hypersomnolence through daytime naps, through certain dietary strategies, things like that, and can function fairly well in society. So kind of really tangenting back to your actual question, there's a full range of individuals when it comes to psychosocial functioning within this hypersomnolence sphere. And that's kind of the challenge here too, is the heterogeneity of the condition. Uh, patients rarely present in the same manner, which to me suggests that we have a disorder that is multiple disorders in one. And we're looking mm -hmm. at this in the wrong way. Does it evolve over time? Like, do you have people who present in their like 20s or 30s with like some daytime sleepiness? And then by the time they're 50 or 60, it's what we would call excessive? Or is this more of an acute phenomenon? I would say more of the latter with elements of the former. Uh, so I think we, it's generally considered a rapid onset condition, but I don't, I don't sure. believe in that. I believe this is more of a developmentally induced condition. So average age of diagnosis is right around young adulthood, 19 to 21 years old. Whoa. But symptoms often present, if you ask these individuals, around 10 to 13 years old. And with puberty changes and social dynamics and things like that and internalization from bullying at school, you can see somebody taking to the bed as a place of safety and harbor and not as a place mm -hmm. of restoration and spending more time in bed. And so I have a, an out there hypothesis that that leads, that sedentation leads to a reduction in wake promoting pathways in the body, which then leads to kind of full blown excessive daytime sleepiness come young adulthood after these pathways have been turned off, if you will, for many years. Wow. Okay. Wow. So you can almost like build up a tolerance to sleep where if you're, if you're getting too much at a young age or if you're spending too much time in an environment conducive to sleep, then... You, yeah, is, is it kind of like building up a tolerance? I think it's one way to look at it for sure. I, I, I think we're not far off here. So the body's always seeking homeostasis. And if you're now telling the body that we, need, we can spend 11 hours in bed, well, the body's going to go, okay, well, I don't need to spend as much of our resources on all this wake stuff. And maybe we don't need to produce as much energy. So naturally, you're not going to feel as energetic. 
and perhaps we're going to see dysregulation or abnormalities in the wake-promoting pathways such as orexin. Why is so much of our day filled with wakefulness then for the average person if our body's trying to maintain homeostasis, reduce energy output? Why is 16 hours, like two-thirds of our day, wakeful? Why aren't we just up for like two hours a day and then sleeping the rest? That is still the question that remains a mystery. Yes, we, we can hypothesize as to why we need eight or somewhere around that with error bars on each for each individual and across all of our days too, we're gonna, our needs gonna vary. But I think the simple answer is that these stages of sleep, as we go through our night, the amount of them change. So early on in the first half, it's kind of a seesaw. We have a lot more of this non-REM, especially non-REM three. And so that's doing something else. That is often regulating the glymphatic system to clear toxins in the brain or promoting human growth hormone to repair muscles or, or help with cellular repair, or even take memories and figure out which ones to keep and which ones to store somewhere else. And then rapid eye movement in the second half of the night of sleep is much more pronounced. And that's doing something entirely different as well, but also similar. And it, it looks a lot like wake two when we study it. So some of the same wake stuff's occurring as far as triggering things we learn that day and storing them in different manners. So it's, it's not just that non-REMs associated with memory, but that would be my answer is as, as complex as we become and as important as brain things become, we need that much time to go through all of these processes. Cause I'm with you. It sounds asinine to like have to close my eyes for eight hours a night and pretend that a lion's not going to eat me. That just doesn't make any sense to me from evolutionary terms. Um, mm -hmm. So I always was under the pretense that we could probably optimize sleep and reduce it. But now at this point in my life, I just don't think that we should be playing with God's hands, so to speak, on this sleep front. Mm -hmm. So all that's great. All this is great so far. I think we've done a great job of outlining what your research is, a little bit of the background in sleep. I'm curious to know, though, how does, how does your research, it, it, it seems very specific, you're dealing with a particular kind of pathology. How does your work on hypersomnolence or on these sleep disorders fit within the broader field of sleep research as it stands right now? How does it, how does it relate to some of the big questions we're trying to answer, some of which we've actually kind of brushed upon today? Yeah, good question for sure. So as you mentioned, sleep's a ginormous field. And within sleep, I tend to view myself more as a clinical scientist. So I want my research to inform clinical decisions and to help patients have a improved quality of life and actual treatments. So I'm not necessarily answering the big questions of, you know, there's a researcher here at the University of Wisconsin, Giulio Tononi, who's trying to use sleep as a lens into consciousness. I'm not trying to answer that question per se, or to really understand right. the true function of sleep. I'm trying to tease apart this enigma of unexplained hypersomnolence and utilize biological methods and then psychological methods as well to advance upon some of the limitations we're experiencing in classification, assessment, and treatment that are really, really, really burdening patient care. And so right now, I'm for my dissertation, I'm actually going to be looking at something called slow waves in particular, which is a hallmark of our deeper non-REM uh, non stage three stage of sleep that are essential for restoration. And so my previous work shows some deficiencies in these individuals in bilateral regions in the brain, but I need to one, replicate those findings because if that replicates, that starts to shed insight into potentially mechanistic dysfunction. And once we have mechanistic dysfunction, similar to our understanding of narcolepsy and orexin, 
we may have better treatment options if you want to go the pharmacotherapy route or some invasive treatment. Are there any treatments currently? Right now, I like to think of them as management, and they're, they're okay. largely based upon the information we have with narcolepsy. So it's, it's largely about improving quality of life and psychosocial functioning through stimulants. These people are begging. They are desperate for any sort of treatment. And most of the treatments that are utilized, the, the pharmacotherapy, are, have a modest effect at best. And again, wow. these are not these are not treatments. These are just band-aids to help people navigate life. There was a recent creation of a cognitive behavioral therapy for hypersomnia by Jason Ong at Northwestern. That's actually still not about, in my eyes, true treatment. That's about management of life to improve psychosocial functioning. If you look at the research, it really shows decreased effects on depression scores. So a good change there. And, but a, only a very slight decrease in sleepiness. So it's more about managing your days, whereas for me, that's not sufficient to me. I don't view this as a non-curable, non-irreversible condition, and I think there are certainly behavioral changes we can do that are likely to have beneficial effects on one's energy level and need for amount of sleep. I appreciate your optimism. There. Yeah. It's good. If you're going to go into the field as a researcher and clinician, you know, going into this behavioral sleep medicine world and trying to actually help people overcome, not just manage this condition, optimism is definitely going to be key. I appreciate the support there because I'm actually on the less populated side of the fence right now, I would say, when it comes to that. Mm -hmm. So I'm really hopeful that my research right now can clarify some mechanistic dysfunction, but also aid as a potential biomarker. Right now, we don't have a good biomarker to distinguish these individuals. And so when someone comes in for assessment, it's kind of a, a black box in some ways of whether they do or they do not have it. And because there's so much patient heterogeneity, if we can have some true valid biomarkers to help distinguish within this very heterogeneous field and create more homogenous diagnoses, we'll have a better, a more effective treatment pathway for these individuals. And the other side of it that I'm looking at is, is something called stability and instability of sleep. Uh, so we change through different stages of sleep throughout the night, and the amount of times we change may shed some insight into why they're not achieving restorative sleep. Uh, if you're changing much more frequently than, say, quote-unquote, a healthy person, whatever that is, then maybe that's the reason you're not feeling restored from your sleep. Interesting. So like the smoothness of that transition between stages varies from individual to individual, potentially. Absolutely. And, and perhaps if you're only in REM for 10 seconds each episode, but somebody else that we consider healthy and gets restored sleep is in it for two minutes each episode, maybe that explains some of the reason that you're experiencing sleepiness. Cool. So I'm optimistic this will be helpful. I'm not optimistic it'll change the game. I think the future, and I, you know, as... I start to think about my career going forward where I want to really advance this field is to get away from the brain a little bit and start thinking about things like the gut microbiome and different dietary strategies that people have in their lives and how that influences their sleepiness. Because I don't know about you, Jeremy, but when I start putting processed sugars in my body, I ramp up and then crash and I just feel lethargic and sleepy for a long time. And I'm not saying this explains all persons excessive daytime sleepiness that falls in this hypersomnolence category. But I think it can for mm -hmm. some. And if we can move the ball for some, I think that's a huge win. For sure. If, if, if diet is a component, there have got to be dozens of others, many of which we've already outlined today. So it's, it is a multifaceted issue that we need to address. 
for sure. Brilliant. Listen, Jesse, I could listen to you talk about sleep for hours on end. It is, it, it's almost, it, it seems like there's an infinite amount of information that you can throw my way, which I appreciate. And with that, I will say that I would definitely like to have you back on the show, especially if I can get a panel going with a bunch of sleep researchers, because I'm sure with your varied and diverse knowledge, you would fit in just beautifully there. I do have one more question for you, though, if you're ready for it. Hit me, Jeremy. Great. So I have one in mind, but... Jesse, let me ask you, what is the craziest sleep abnormality or disorder or syndrome you have ever heard of? Um, actually, there's a couple that come to mind, but I'll go with this one because it's related to the one that uh, I study. So it's called sure. Klein-Levin syndrome. It's called KLS. And it emerged from a royal family in Britain. That's where it can be traced back to. And there's a strong genetic prediction from it. And basically, these individuals will sleep anywhere from 14 to 21 days, pretty much straight. Whoa. They go on these, these sleep binges. Yeah, and so they'll end That's up sleeping crazy. like 23 hours a day for that period of time, and there's nothing they can do about it. So that's certainly one of them for me. That's, so you know what? I love that, that your, uh, your crazy sleep abnormality was about like hyper excessive sleep, because the one I was thinking of was called fatal familial insomnia, which is kind of the opposite side of the spectrum, where there is also this genetic relatedness, but people end up having terrible insomnia to the point where they actually die after weeks or months because they can't get the sleep they need. Yeah, it's crazy. And that's the important stuff here. And I think that's a, a prion disease as well, if I remember correctly. But yeah, it, it is. it's very, very fascinating. And yeah, I mean, it's you can choose how to live your life however you want. I'm not going to harp that there's one way to do it. But the reality is, if you're undersleeping, if you're getting less than six hours of sleep a night, and I still think that's too little for most people. We want seven hours for most adults. The negative effects of sleep will catch up to you at some point. It may not be overnight. It may not be the same as the person in your life who had a heart attack because of their sleep issues. You may develop Alzheimer's. Who knows? There's just nothing in our biology that is immune to insufficient and poor sleep. So if I can leave you with anything, you know, I'm, I'd be happy to come on at any time, Jeremy. You're, you're very enthusiastic and a great host and I appreciate it. And I just love to have a platform to talk sleep. But if I can leave you with anything, just try and make this a priority. And I know the audience is a lot of grad students and that could be a really challenging time to get sleep. But it also could be argued the most important time to really make this a priority from its impact on emotional processing, from its impact on psychological well-being, from its impact on physical health. It should be one of the top priorities in your day-to-day -day life. Bam. I have nothing to follow up with that. Amazing. At, at 20 different points in today's episode, I was going to ask something and you took the words right out of my mouth because you just had the exact information that I wanted and you gave it to me, to us. So thank you very much. This has been a pleasure. You were great. Uh, I hope to see you back on the show in the future. For now, have an awesome rest of your afternoon and take care. Thank you. Be well. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So. Feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, 
Take it easy.